Well, the culture is changing, and you know this if you ever have kids, those of us who have kids, you realize it as your kids grow up, right? And this is kind of how grandparents tell their kids stories, and you know, parents tell their kids stories. As we say things like, you know, when I had to go to school, I had to walk both ways uphill in the snow, right? Uh, that was what our grandparents told us. And then we tell our kids, I had to go to Blockbuster, right? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you had to go into the store, and you could get one movie, and they might not have it. And you had to bring it back the next day. I know it was a long time ago, but it's interesting because I was talking to a missiologist, and a missiologist is just somebody who, uh, for a living, um, studies, particularly in this case, America, to, to help us understand how the church can better reach our nation and the people of our nation. And one of the things he told me is he said it used to take about 20 years for cultural change to happen, and, and that was in large part because of technology. I mean, think about the VCR. It's like, well, that was there for a while, and then DVD came, and slowly that was there for a while. There's a subtle change. It was Blu-ray, that was the, you know, but it's basically the same. And then all of a sudden, then there was Redbox, and everyone thought, oh, that's the future. And then two years later, everyone said, oh, there's Redbox, that's the past, right? <laughs> and then there was Netflix, and now there, and that was, you know, send in the DVDs, and that now it's streaming, and everything's streaming. And I say all that to say, our culture has changed greatly, and, and not just with technology. That's one element of it, but morally, right? There's different values. Um, and here's how you know that there's been a change in your culture. This is what they say. This is what sociologists say. Three things have to happen for there to be a radical change in your culture. First, uh, what used to be celebrated is now condemned. Second, what used to be condemned is now celebrated. Well, think beliefs, think lifestyles, think institutions, think people. And then finally, and this is where we are now, those who will not celebrate are condemned. And so we are in a place as a culture where our culture is changing out. Now, how, you know, how quickly did it change and where did it start? I mean, probably on college campuses and near cities and, you know, and how bad is it? We could all debate that, but the culture's changed. And, and as you turn or type to Daniel chapter 3, I'm going to kind of do a little background work to understand what we're talking about here. Because here's what, in the book of Daniel, we find roughly four teenagers. That's kind of the central part of the book so far. And they end up in a culture that's very different than the culture they grew up in. They grew up in like a good Christian home, good Christian culture. They get drugged. They're basically prisoners of war. They're, they're uh, victims of human trafficking. That's what this is. And they get taken 700 miles to a completely new city, and everything's different. And the main question in the book, and it's the main question for you and I to wrestle with as we read this book, is, okay, you're living in a city that's very different in its values than Christianity, and then the church, are you going to be a Babylonian, or are you going to be a believer? That's the question in the whole book, and you know, how does that work itself out? And, and to understand it rightly, you have to understand that what we lived in for about 500 years in the West, we lived in something called Christendom. You may have not heard that word, or you may have heard that word used a couple different times. I'm going to try to understand this because I think it's going to explain a little bit of what you are experiencing, what we're experiencing in our culture. Christendom was a, it was a unique period in time for about 500 years when the church's values, the values of the Bible, and the values of the culture, they had a lot of shared values, right? I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not saying that there weren't blind spots. I'm not saying that, weren't, you know, that everything was perfect in that time period, but for the most part, you could think about it this way, like, you know, everybody thought sex should be reserved for marriage. Everybody thought marriage was one man, one woman, one lifetime. Everybody thought, for the most part, there was such a thing as truth. Everybody thought uh, kids were a blessing. I mean, th these were basic thoughts, right? In, in, in Christendom, what happened is you had Christian people who were um, respected in the culture, right? So the Bible was a respected book back then. Uh, the ministry was a respected profession. I had a friend of mine He's in, he's in ministry. He said he was on vacation, and you know he talked to somebody, and they said, what do you do? And he said, I'm in ministry. And, and the lady responded, that's cute. <laughs> that's cute. And like as if that, maybe you'll do something else when you grow up, because that's not what you know, people do anymore. And so Christendom, you know, it lasted for 
you know, about 500 years, and now we're in a time where there's, a, there's beginning to be a more and more of a difference between the culture and between uh, Christianity. And, and it shows up a couple different ways. Like, so there's three main ways the culture will attack Christianity. And we're not anti-culture, right? Because culture is made up of you and me. So, and you're an image bearer of God who's broken and fallen. What does that mean? It means culture has things that we can commend and we have to challenge. It has things we can celebrate, you know, and it has things that we have to challenge. But, um, but anyway, as we think about this, uh, there's three main attacks that the culture does on us. First is worldliness, right? That was Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one is worldliness. It's like, well, you know, drink all this wine and eat all this great food and just be like one of us, right? And we had to see that Daniel had to draw a line and say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give into worldliness. And that would probably be the number one temptation here in America. But then you see the next two temptations uh, are false teaching and persecution. False, so today's story, we'll get there, but today's story is this. You have Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. He makes a false image, that'd be false teaching, tells them to bow down to it, and if they don't, he will burn them alive. So that's persecution. And what you need to realize is that in, in America, for the most part, what we experience is mostly worldliness with some false teaching. What they experience all over the world, for the most part, is persecution. I had a, a friend of mine, he was a missionary in India. He's back now. He lives here again. He said he lived in India for several years. And he said, when I was in India, he said, the living was so hard, but the soil was so soft. And he said, now that I'm back in America, the living is so soft, uh, but the soil is so hard. And, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to see how Daniel, how his friends thrived in Babylon. So if you'll look with me, let's, let's look to Daniel chapter 3, and we're just going to camp out first on verse 1. Here's what it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll look at him more next week, and he actually kind of writes a little autobiographical sketch uh, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 4, but here's what it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet roughly, and its breadth six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here's what we have happening. This is kind of the, the stage in the background. We have a totalitarian government, right? This is very common in history. This is actually the kind of government that most people have lived under. You know? and, and, and by the way, as Christian, you want to be Bible-saturated. You want to be historically rooted. You want to be globally informed. You want to know all these things. And so it's helpful to know that most people have lived under terrible men like this. Men who command them to do things. Men who do not seek their good. Men who are selfish. Right? Even, even this week, I, I don't know if you saw this, and I don't, can't get into too much of this, but Vladimir Putin got up and basically said, I'm going to continue to be the dictator in Russia. It's like, well, of course you are, because dictators don't retire, they die. That's what they do. That's exactly what you're going to do. And so anyway, we should just, I, part of when you read a story like this, part of what you should say is, thank God I don't live in a place like this. I know, you know, our government can be dysfunctional, and there's different sides and debates and all that, but thank God that we have somewhat, something that looks like freedom. So, so here's what he does. So he, he puts up an image. Now, this is very, very interesting. What is the image of? You know, it's very, very common, you know, you can see this in North Korea and other places where dictators put massive images of themselves up, right? Now, now, we don't know what the image is. You can look. The, the word image, I think, is used 11 times in this chapter. We're never one time told what exactly the image is. Now, was it an image of himself, maybe, right? And that would be, that would be very American, right, to bake a massive image of yourself, right? Because what's the number one thing that we worship? Ourselves. I mean, just, just think about it. You know, we live in a selfie culture, or you've got... Um, you know, our, here, give me, let me give you a couple examples of how I think that we, our tendency in America is to worship ourselves. Our obsession with personality tests. <laughs> right? I'm not against personality tests, right? They're really, they really, really can be helpful. I've taken a lot of them. We, th we think they're a great way to get to know each other. They, they you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. But what do a lot of people do with personality tests? I just really need to know myself. And not only that, I need to let everybody else know myself. Why? So they can bow to me. 
right? I mean, the personality test, really, uh, the Christian perspective on the personality test is, I should know myself better so I can know my sins and my weaknesses, and so I would never use them as an excuse, right? Because my personality is not an excuse to sin. And maybe I could learn how to serve better, but that's not how it's often used, right? It's more like, well, you know, I'm a number X, so serve me this way, please. Here's another way. I mean, you've got, you've got somebody like Emma Watson, you know, who she was Hermione in Harry Potter, and she was, you know, she was Belle in Beauty and the Beast. Okay, so she's 30 now, and she's single still, and she's self-admittedly a little insecure about it. So she says, she says she's not single, she's self-partnered. She has a relationship with herself. She says this. You have Taylor Swift, okay, who her number one song right now is called Me. And it's a terrible song. I mean, it's got a good beat, but I listen to it. It's like, it's like, I'm a terrible, like, I'm a terrible girlfriend. I'm a terrible lover. You never had anyone like me. I'm like, what? You, you know, it's just, but it's like, that's, that's exactly the American culture. I messed up, but aren't I awesome? I mean, so, so there's the worship of self. Then, there, then there's, some people think it's that, and it probably is that. Um, but there's also, they think maybe it's his gods, because we don't know. It's his image, right? So it could be his gods. And and that's very, very common because, you know, what people want to do is they want to hang out with people who worship the same thing as they do. That's very common. It's like, well, you know, we worship this sports team or, I don't know, maybe I worship this type of alcohol and I, I want to be around other people who will worship it with me, who love it as much as I do. Well, you know, we don't know if it's that. The third thing is people think, well, is it, um, is it like somehow representing the state? We don't know. But let me ask you this. What would the image be today? If, if, uh, or what is the image today? Because we read these stories and, and our tendency is often to read them and go, Oh, those silly people, and those silly governments, and those silly collection of people who said, we're all going to bow down to something or else we're going to be punished. Well, what is the image today? And it's going to take me a few minutes to unpack for you guys, okay? And you'll have to listen very, very carefully, okay? But I think the image that we bow down to, that we are told that we have to bow down to, or we will be punished today is tolerance, and let me explain to you, because I'm not talking about tolerance, like the good type of tolerance. Like, so tolerance historically has meant something like, hey, look, you're probably pretty stupid, and I'm probably pretty stupid, and to, we don't know that much, and so we're both going to have to have free speech. And you're going to say some things that offend me, and I'm going to say some things that offend you, but that's just how life is. And, but, but, but guess what? We're going to have to tolerate each other. We're going to have to endure one another. We're going to have to put up with one another. Even if we disagree and have completely different beliefs, we're just going to have to endure with one another. That's like the American spirit. That's the old tolerance, and that's good. I'm not talking about that. Put that off to the side, because, because what you need to realize is today people are using the same vocabulary but a different dictionary. And, and what, what's happened is tolerance has meant I will affirm you, I will approve of you, I will celebrate you publicly. Even if it's, you know, I will bow down to you, right? I will, and, and let me just tell you how it works. So it, it's, a, it's a trinity, just like, you know, a lot of things show up in threes, right? So there's a trinity of tolerance, and you've heard these words. I'm going to unpack them for you. And you're probably going to have to take notes. And you're probably going to have to go back and listen to this again. Because I'm going to say a bunch of things that are going to sound offensive. Because they're the exact opposite of what the culture has been talking about. And I'm going to have to explain words that you think are good but are not good. Um, and so the acronym is D-I-E, DIE. Which is, that's what they want us to do, okay? Um, that's a good acronym. So it stands for Diversity, Inclusivity, and Equity. Okay, and this is on the college campus. This is in the hospital systems. This is in the law firms. This is in every human resource, resource department. And it's scary, and Christians don't know what to do about it, okay? So, because it's like, well, hey, diversity. It's like, well, you know, you're looking at me right now. Is he going to say anything bad about diversity? I mean, most churches put diversity on their website, you know, at the front of their website. And that's not a bad word. It's a, it can be a biblical word. If by diversity you mean, you know, the, the beautiful nature of how God's created people, and yeah, there's some old, and there's some young, and 
you know, there's some white and there's some black and there's some yellow and men and women and, you know, healthy and not healthy. The problem with, like, diversity is, like, you're thinking of three or four. There's, like, hundreds of types of diversity, right? It's like, well, healthy, not healthy. Intelligent, not intelligent. Wealthy parents, not wealthy parents. Don't think that stuff doesn't affect you. Where you live, where you're born. It's, like, so diverse. So diversity is a good thing in that sense. What diversity, what, what, but you have to understand, when people say diversity today, they mean my sinful desires. I want you, I'm going to, all my sinful desires, I just want you to expect, respect them. It's just part of me and be diverse. And I want you to approve them and I want you to affirm all of my sinful desires. And we have to say, you have to say this about yourself first, right? Because it's not their problem, it's our problem. You say, well, listen, I have sinful desires too. You know, and I'm kind of ashamed of them and here's what they are and I'm working on them and I'm really trying to put them to death in my life. But that's not called diversity, that's called depravity. And we don't, we don't ever help anyone by going, Christ didn't need to die for that. We, we, have to, we, have to, we have to be more sophisticated than that. We have to be more intentional than that. We have to be more winsome than that. So that's the first word. The second word is inclusivity. And you're going to hear that word all the time. Bow to it. Bow with the pronoun. Bow. That's what you're going to hear. Bend all that you are to me. Well, it's inclusivity. Inclusivity basically. Now, who wants to be against inclusivity? Inclusivity is just like, it sounds at one level like, well, everybody's welcome. Well, that's a great thing to say. In one sense, it's like, but what inclusivity means is, again, you must accept me. You must approve of me. You must celebrate everything about me. And Christianity says, well, you know, Christianity is the most inclusive religion ever because, well, you know, anybody can come from any nation, no matter what you've done, no matter what's done to you, I don't know, no matter where you've been, no matter what you previously believed. It's the most inclusive religion ever, but it's the most exclusive in the sense that you have to come by one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you got that, and then equity, it's like, well, who wants to say anything bad about the word equal? It's like it's a good word, right? But we have to think more deeply than that. It's like, well, yeah, we're equal. We're equal in you know, value and dignity and significance and worth and all that, all that really good stuff. In fact, Christianity, I think, is the only worldview that actually can give you a reason why there's equality because we're made in the image of God, right? Like atheistic Darwinian evolution does not lead to everybody's equal. I mean, that's not the logic of it. Um, but, but Christianity does. But what we have to say to people, and this is, this is like, we just have to say this in love and with good eye contact and humility. It's like, hey, listen, we're all equal before the Lord because we're made in his image, but not all ideas are equal. And we know that. It's like, just think of a couple ideas and you'll realize they're not equal. It's like, well, you know, all lifestyles aren't equal. All perspectives aren't equal. And we have to say these kind of things and they're going to be incredibly offensive. And so what, we, what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to watch these men faithfully walk in a culture that's asking them to bow down. And you're going to, you're going to feel this. They're going to pull you into the HR room. I mean, I, I've seen this. They're going to make you go through training. They're going to make you go against your conscience. They're going to make you silently do things that make you feel weak. And, and so I want us to, I want us to see what, what these men did. Let's look back. That was all, that was all verse 1. Okay, here we are. Verse, verse 2. All right. Ver, verse 2. Here's what it says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justice, and the magistrates, and all the officials. It's like it's a lot of people. Uh, and then he says, of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then verse three again, then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justice and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the first thing I want you to see is the culture will command you to worship what it worships. And, and here's what you see. It's like, well, well, first you've got to ask, well, can a whole city really worship one thing? Can a whole culture really worship one thing? Well, think about it. Boston, what does it worship? Intellect. New York, fame and money. Miami looks. D.C., power. Hollywood, fame. I mean, people actually, I mean, 
part of the whole, like, hey, I'm going to graduate from college, and I'm going to move to, you know, X or Y, or it's like, well, we all, most of us know why you're moving there. That's because you want to worship what they're worshiping in that situation, in that city. Because there are literally certain cities that tend to worship certain things. And so what we see here is um, they, they want to get everybody to worship the same thing. So what do they do? First, they get leadership involved. Do you notice that? Two different times it mentions all these leadership kind of gurus, right? And we read it, we go, well, who are the prefects and the satraps? And to us, that's not how it works. It's the sports stars and the celebrities, right? I mean, that's at least part of how they get us to, to do what everybody else is doing. Because what, here's what happens when you watch a celebrity. Here's what happens when I watch a celebrity. You watch a celebrity and you think, well, he's good looking or she's good looking and they're wealthy, and they've been successful in at least one domain, they probably know something I don't. That's kind of subconsciously what's happening with you, right? It's like every time I watch Matthew McConaughey in a commercial, I'm like, I need it. <laughs> I do. I'm like, I didn't even want that car. I don't even need a new car. But he just looks so good in that car. <laughs> right? It's like there, there's something. Like, we're not above that. Like there's something about it that like, it, you know, so, so they get the leaders. And, and here's the first thing that we want to see is that they, they use peer pressure, right? Peer pressure is a real thing. I don't know when it starts. Does it start when you're three or four? I don't know. It never ends, right? And peer pressure is a good thing in one sense because, you know, we're always watching each other, right? It's like, well, because you're asking this question whether you know it or not. Well, how should I act and, you know, what should I do? And you're certainly asking that when you get to middle school or high school or college or your first job or you move into a neighborhood or you go to a new city. And you're, you're trying to walk. How do people act around here, right? And, and a good rule in life is you should most of the time do what everyone else is doing. You know, it's like, no offense, but what do you know, right? What do I know? It's like, okay, you're 18, you're 20 years old. What do you do? Well, how about what everybody else has done for the most part? You know, it's like the, the 18 and 20-year-old goes, I don't want to ever get married, have a job, or have kids. It's like, you don't know anything, <laughs> right? I mean, how, how, why would you be so special that you would want to do something different than everybody else has done? You have to be uniquely special. You'd have to have a unique calling on your life to do something completely different than everyone else. So what ends up happening is like, you know, for the most part, you do what everybody else does, right? And then also, if you're doing something and everybody's telling you that it's wrong, if you have any common sense, you usually change, which is what you should do. Think of it, it's like, okay, so, you know, 10 people are telling me I'm, I'm an idiot for doing something. I'm probably an idiot. I mean, that's, that should, unless you're a sociopath or psychopath, your first thought when 10 people tell you you're wrong is, I'm wrong. So I'm, t I'm just saying, so th this is why it's complex, because, well, th but that sometimes you should go against the grain. I mean, that's where scripture has been really, really clear, right? But, but peer pressure is hard. So they did this famous peer pressure study in the 1950s. And, and what it was is they brought 10 students into the room, nine of whom were part of the study. Like they knew that it was going to be a game, it was going to be a setup. And the other student didn't know. And the teacher would put two sentences on the board and ask which sentence was longer. And they had set it up so that every time the nine students who were playing around would raise their hand at the wrong sentence. You get it? So, so they, would, they were wanting to know... It was so obvious it was the shorter sentence. And they wanted to see how often would somebody raise their hand simply because everybody else is raising their hand. 75% of the time. And we can't be too hard on that person because it's like you might do the same thing, right? Because your tendency is, did I get the instructions wrong? You know? <laughs> Maybe she says shortest sentence, right? I mean, you just start having all these internal conversations, which is what would normally happen. But peer pressure is really, really dangerous, right? I mean, a lot of us experience that. Maybe when you get to high school or middle school and you start realizing, yeah, you know, peer pressure when I was young was like, you know, I want his tennis shoes or I want that outfit or I want to play this sport. But, you know, peer pressure in middle school and high school could be something like, I, you know, I feel I shouldn't send these pictures of myself that are inappropriate, but I feel pressure to. You know, I probably shouldn't let somebody who's not my spouse put their hands all over my body, but I feel pressure to. That's a very, very common thing. 
And so part of what the church does is the church comes along and says, look, you're going to be you're going to be susceptible to peer pressure. That's how God made you. God made you to, to, to be in community and to be impacted and influenced by other people. And so actually the best thing you should do is put yourself around people where you're going to experience good peer pressure. It's like, you know, why do you, well, I don't really, you know, want to be known. It's like, well, you probably need the peer pressure of going to a weekender so that you are known. Well, I don't really want to be accountable with my life and have deep relationships. Well, you probably need the peer pressure of a DNA group, you know. Well, I don't really want to be in community. We probably need the peer pressure of a community group, a healthy peer pressure. Well, I don't really like to serve. I like the whole weekend to be like, well, you probably need the peer pressure of not being so selfish and self-focused. And you find out when you get in those environments, you end up liking them. And so what we see is the, these men, they are tempted to give in to peer pressure. I want you to see what happens next. Verse 4, and the herald proclaimed aloud. So the world's always preaching. This is the language of preaching. The herald proclaimed aloud you are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages. So here's what we see. He's actually telling every type of person, not just the Jews, to bow down. Now, you have to understand that this is not how Christian, Christians view worship. We don't think that faith can be forced. We, we don't think that we should ever make anybody bow down to, even the Lord Jesus. We can't make, we can't, we believe in conversion, that somebody's born again, the Holy Spirit comes in their life, changes, and we don't believe in coercion that we and of ourselves can make people do these types of things. But what we see in this situation is he's calling all of the peoples to come together and to bow down. Uh, here's what I want you to see next, verse 5. That when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So how does, how does King Nebuchadnezzar influence people? He uses symbols and he uses songs. Do you see that? It's like, well, nothing's changed, right? I mean, the power of symbols. Like, I was, my son's about to turn six, and he started playing basketball, and I said, hey, let's go get a basketball, and we go to the store, and there's all these basketballs on, uh, and they were all basically the same price. So I said, just pick whatever one you want. So he's having a great time. He's looking all around. He can't pick one. He finally finds one he likes. He's, it's, like, all colorful and everything, and he's looking around, and he, gets, he says, Dad, this is awesome, but where's the Nike swoosh? I said, it's Spalding. Sorry, you know? <laughs> but I didn't teach him that. I don't even wear Nike. I mean, you know, it's just, but, but he is brand sensitive at six. Okay? So this is, deep, symbols are deep into us, right? This is why, like, if you walked in and you were holding a McDonald's cup versus a Starbucks cup and they both had coffee in it, you'd feel a lot better about the Starbucks cup, right? You would probably, because this symbol means something, right? It's like, well, this is where I got it from. It was a dollar more here, okay? Um, so... So, you know, symbols are powerful, but songs are really powerful. So, you know, you think about that, it said every type of music. And I forget who said this. Somebody said something like, I don't care who writes a nation's laws as long as I get to write their songs. And so, song, so we see song, it's basically a worship service. There's preaching, there's worship, there's song, there's symbol. It's all coming together. So here's the second thing I want us to see. The culture will punish you if you don't worship what it does. The culture will punish you if you don't worship what it does. Look at verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. You know, you think about what an intense punishment. You know, I, I've got a few friends who are firefighters, and one of my friends who's a firefighter, he told me every time he goes to a fire, there are always jumpers at every fire. He said, it doesn't matter what building you go to, if the fire's been burning long enough, there's jumpers. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how many stories it is. And he said, the reason is people do not want to burn alive. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm one of those weird people who every 9-11 I rewatch, you know, at least an hour or two of footage from 9-11 because I was old enough. I remember. I know where I was. I know how significant of an event it was. I know how, 
Anyway, and one of the things I always watch, I know this is kind of macabre and everything, but I, I watch the jumpers. And, you know, if you don't know that, I mean, people jumped from, well, we don't even have a building half the size of the World Trade Center in our city. But people jumped from the 100th floor, and they held hands. And, and I tell you all this to get the seriousness of what it means to burn alive. I mean, this is not something that you want to ever, ever do. The, right? This is why this story is so important, because what the Bible will often do is it'll give you an it's a true story, but it'll give you an extreme example. Like, you know, because it's like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, how about a tyrannical dictator who makes you publicly bow down and then burns you alive if you don't? It's like, that's, I can't think of, get, of it getting much worse than that, right? And, and for something to work, like, you know, people go, well, this will work, or here's a principle, or here's a practice. It, it has to work in the worst situation to be true. It's like, this has to work in, if, it has to, in every situation, it would have to work for it to be true. And so we're going we're to see what they end up doing. But, but see, today we don't, we don't experience the fiery furnace, and thank God for that. But we, we basically experience two things, I think. Uh, we experience criticism, right? And that's not fun. You know, and we can act like, you know, it's sticks and stones don't break our bones and, and all, you know, words will never hurt us or whatever. But it, it's very, very painful, you know, to have somebody say things to you like, oh, you know, you're bigoted and you're oppressed and you're unloving and you're behind the times and you're small-minded and... I mean, who else know, Who knows what else will say? I mean, I've told you before. I can't remember. I don't even know if I've done it since we've been in this building. But uh, you know, I, when I was at doing ministry at Duke, I was meeting with a student. I'll never forget. I had several things like this happen to me, but one I'll never forget is I was sharing the gospel with a student there, and I knew the student pretty well. And and he looked at me and he said, "I feel bad for you." Right? I mean, this kid was ten years younger than me, and he says, "I feel bad for you." Just so arrogant. I said, "He said, I said really." He said, "Well, I said why?" He says, "Well, because you're oppressed." by a book written by a bunch of guys who are now dead. But you, then is this not demonic? But then he said, but you feel good, don't you? Because you think you know the truth. And I just felt about, you know, this small. I don't even remember how I responded. I remember I needed a community, though. I needed to call my pastor afterwards. I needed to talk through some things. Because it's not, it's not great to be confronted like that. It's not great to be called out like that. It's not great to be always questioned like that, Right? So you're going to experience criticism, and who knows what it'll be. You won't even hear it. It'll be behind your back, or I don't know. Someone will say something to you about you on Twitter, and it's all painful. It's all hurt. You know, it's not, not helpful. It hurts. Second thing you'll probably experience is exclusion of some sort, right? I'm not a doomsday person. I'm not saying this is all going to happen tomorrow. I'm just saying this, this, this can happen and often does happen in, in societies and civilizations is, is exclusion. And exclusion is just like, okay, well, you're not invited out for drinks or dessert afterwards because you're, you're that type of person or... I don't know. You're not, on a more serious note, you know, you're not promoted. Because you have some convictions that kind of go against our company, and we're not going to get rid of you, but we're not going to promote you, and I know you're trying to make enough money for your family, and I know how hard that is. But, you know, now, and it's not even that you couldn't, you've got the character, or sorry, you've got the capacity, you've got the competency, but you've got, you're your own lid voluntarily because of what you believe, and that's going to hinder you and your family financially. It's like, that's really hard. It's like, no wonder these things are hard. No wonder, unfortunately, in human history, most people go along with everything. Like, you know, when you, like, when you think of human history, people think, oh, here's what human history is. A big, bad dictator who oppresses all the people. It's like, you wish that was what happened. Because then that could change fairly quickly. What actually happens is people are complicit and willfully blind at every level. So, like, in the gulags, which, you know, that was the concentration camps of Soviet Union, guess who ran them? Because, I mean, that's a lot of people in there. They were th when you think concentration camp, think city. That's what it was. Who runs them? Well, yes, there were some guards, but they basically were run by the inmates. 
because someone finally said, well, I'm, I'll sell my soul to the devil because I'll get more food rations here, and so I'll oppress all my other guys who are younger than me. It's like this is actually what happens is everybody turns a blind eye, and everybody says, well, I can't say anything. And everybody says, well, they just moved two more millimeters toward us, that's all. They just asked me to do one thing that my conscience didn't want me to do. And so they're excluded. And again, this is why the church becomes so important, because the more this happens, the more you're going to realize the church is the place where you can be comforted, where you, can, where, uh, you will be understood. And so let me show you what happens next. So they're told this, and then verse, verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, all the peoples, so basically everybody's doing it, right? One of the sad things of history is exactly that, that most people are not Schindler. Most people are weak. Most people don't have convictions. Most people go with the flow because they don't want to get in trouble. And it's like, well, you know, who knows what you and I would do until we were in that situation? You really don't know. Only God knows what you would do. But in this situation, it says this, all the peoples heard the sound, the nations, the language, they fell down, they worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But here's the next thing. The culture will not let you hide because I want you to see this in verse eight. Because I think sometimes what we think is, well, you know, maybe I just won't say anything. Maybe I just won't do anything. Maybe if I be quiet, no one will ever ask me anything. Well, I want you to see what happens. In verse eight, it says this. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. So basically what happens is, and this helps us understand something else. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, it's like, like most Christians. It's like, you know, we're sheep. It means like we're not, the, the Christian does not want to be disagreeable. The Christian does not want to be divisive. The, the Christian does not want to cause more harm or damage or make a bigger scene than is necessary. We want to use minimal necessary force in all that we do. So what happens, we don't know exactly, is they didn't bow, but they weren't making a big spectacle of it. They, they weren't writing about it on Facebook. They weren't shooting YouTube videos. They, 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 were, they were just, they, they maybe you know, something, maybe they even went up to the image, but they didn't bow. It's like they, 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 like we talked about in the first week, they knew the line on which they had to draw. But what you end up finding out is that, and this happens all the time in, as, as uh, societies and cultures change, is they, they encourage spying on one another. That's actually becoming more and more popular on the college campus, you know? They'll put students in classes, hey, tell me if your professor who doesn't have tenure says anything that you don't want him to say. You'd be surprised how many professors are terrified until they get tenure. That some student's going to tell this, that then they, they're, not, they're not diverse enough, inclusive enough, equity enough, and they're going to lose their jobs. You see, you know, in Eastern Germany at one point, one out of every three person was a government informant. This really happened. If you have a family of six, two of you are spies. Right? Betrayal is a big part of scripture, right? That's a big, under, uh, Jesus was betrayed. Betrayal, like people close to you tell on you. And who knows why they told on them? We don't know. It's like, did they not like them? Maybe. Did they not like Christians because they had a bad experience? Well, well who knows. Were they upset because they got promoted? Well, I don't know. Right? Well, what you're going to see is that, they, that the three men, they don't get angry at these men who are going against them, right? Because part of what you have to understand is, well, you know, the people who are coming against us, and I'm not trying to act like it's all adversarial, but the people who accuse us of being unloving, intolerant, we have to realize, well, that's what I would have probably thought if I didn't know Christ. That's how I did think before I didn't know Christ. And they're not my enemy. That's a really helpful thing to know. It's like, you know, I have an enemy. 
I have a very personal, intelligent enemy. His name's Satan. And he's an unrepentant being, and I can hate him. And I can realize he has my harm and destruction. But these people, I mean, that's actually, as the, as the story of Daniel goes on, you realize, okay, Nebuchadnezzar's a pawn in a larger scheme that Satan's doing. And so these people come, you know, the, the, the three guys, they're misunderstood. They tell on him, and then here's what happens in verse 9 through 12. They declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the tigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? So, you know, a good question just to ask is, what will you do when you're personally asked your views about something? that are contrary to culture. It's going to happen, right? It may, it, may, it may be the HR department pulls you in. It may be your boss pulls you in. It may be you're, you're getting to know your neighbors and, I don't know, some issue comes up and, you know, they want to just know where you stand on it. And they ask you and, you know, I, you know that feeling. Your chest starts to, you know, you're like, I don't want to sound like I'm unloving or bigot or whatever, whatever, because you, you believe in something instead of everything, okay? Well, there's a really good book called Tactics, by Greg Kokel, but he, he walks through some of these things. But he says that in a situation like that, if you're ever questioned, you want to say, and you can do your own version of this, but you want to say something like this. Um, thank you for asking that question about what I believe. This is actually a very personal matter for me. Um, you, ha you have diverse views here, right? You are okay with diverse views here, right? Okay, good. And you would consider yourself a very tolerant person, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my diverse views and I hope that this will be a safe place where you will be tolerant of me. Would that, could I, is that what I can expect? It will be almost impossible for them to be intolerant after the situation has been set up like that. Part of it is it's, it's, it's the willful blindness of not realizing that there is an intolerance with all of the tolerance, right? Everybody's intolerant of something, right? Try ordering steak at a vegan restaurant. <laughs> Try taking a knife onto, uh, onto TSA, past TSA. Try smoking a cigarette on an airplane. It's like, well, okay, I guess everybody's intolerant. But it just doesn't feel good to say you're intolerant. It's, you know, we want to be accepting, and I get that. So he calls them in. They stand with courage. And here's what happens next, verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, everything, he says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Final thing we see with them is the culture needs to see our courage and conviction. The culture needs to see our courage and conviction. Look at verses 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they look at the most powerful man in the world. They answered and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what they have is courage, right? And it's like, that's exactly what you need, right? That's what I need. It's like, that's what you want to have. You don't admire people who don't have courage. But what is courage? It's like, well, every definition of courage is basically the same. It's doing something even though you're afraid. The second half of that would be because you're afraid of something else even more. 
right? It's like, well, you know, who knows what will happen to you if you say something? Well, maybe you're afraid of what your whole industry would become if you didn't, or what your soul would be like if you're the kind of person who just does things that make you feel weak all the time, and get in line with everybody else and say nothing and just be like a domesticated person in your workplace and you can't handle it anymore. Maybe that's worse. So what do they do? Well, verses 17 and 18 are interesting. How, where does courage come from? It comes from faith, but it comes from a, a holistic faith. So there's, there's three components. Tim Keller says verses 17 and 18 are maybe the two best verses in the whole Bible um, for faith. It's comprehensive. And so what you see there is he says, God can. Then he even says, so that's like uh, the character of God that I know. God will, that's my eager expectation and hope as I live. I believe that God's actively involved in the world. I actually believe that. I believe that all of his promises are for me. And I believe that God wants to move and often does move. But then the third part is, is the balance of it all, right? Which is, but if he does not. Right, and that, that, that actually leads you to a really healthy place, you know? I was talking to somebody this week and some terrible things had happened in their life that they had been praying would not happen. You know, and it's like, well, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, you, you say, you take them to a verse like that and you say, here's what you did. You were praying, and you knew God's character, you knew God's ability, but you didn't know God's plan, right? That's what he's saying. This prayer is, I know God's power, I don't know his plan, I don't know his purpose. And that's hard. It's like, you know, none of us do. So we want to, so what often happens if we're not careful, we have to hold all those, or you be, people become cynical. You're like, yeah, I prayed for a person that was sick and they died. So I don't pray for people who are sick anymore. And then I didn't pray for someone who was sick and they lived. So now I'm really confused, right? I mean, that kind of stuff happens. It's like, well, we need, we need a balanced idea that God is powerful, but we don't always know his plan and purpose. And so they, they continue on here. It's at verse, um, that was verse 18. Let's go to verse 19. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it is usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. So what they were able to do, and this is, this is what I think part of what courage means, at least in this element, they were able to say no to, well, Nebuchadnezzar in this situation. It's like, that, and how can you say no? Like, what does it mean to say no? And this is helpful to know because you're gonna, you're gonna need to say no sometime. To really say no to somebody is basically to say this, there's nothing that you can do to me to make me do that. And it's hard to say no, because it's like, well, now we're going to see things don't go out that well for them right away, right? And it's like, well, you know, why don't, you know, I keep giving the work example, because I think that's where a lot of you are. It's like, you know, to say no at work, it's like, well, to really say no, you're not going to do something that, you know, might lose your job. It's like, well, what are you going to have to do beforehand? Well, put your CV together, work on your interview skills, put your resume to get, send it out to some people, think creatively. It's like, well, no one wants to do that, Right? Like, I'll give you an example. I didn't give this in the first service. I just thought of it right now. But I know that in, in, in the church world, what happens is a lot of mainstream churches, uh, mainline, not mainstream, mainline churches, they, um, they start going very theologically liberal to the left. And guess why nobody says anything about it? None of the older pastors say anything about it. Because their retirement's tied up in it. Because it's like, well, why don't I just shut my mouth for five years? And maybe you should. I mean, who knows what I would do in that situation, and who knows what you would do? But I'm just telling you what happens. It's like, okay, so then let, why, don't, why don't 50 of you do that? There's 50 of you, and you don't say anything, and I get why, and you get why too. 
It's like, but then what happens, right? It's like, well, then the whole denomination goes that way, and nobody's got a voice, and, but, you know, good, you've got retirement for 20 years. Praise God for that. These are difficult things. So, so they look to these people, and they, they say, no, there's nothing you can do to make me not do this. Well, then you know what happens, right? Verse 21, then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning fires, burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and he said, but I see four unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What we end up seeing is that God doesn't keep them from the furnace, but he keeps them from the flames in the furnace. He actually, they actually end up getting in the furnace. One commentator, he called this the flames of fellowship. That it's, that it's, that it's actually in the, and you know this, right? It's like, you know, you may have to go into the operating room, but Christ will be with you. That's the idea of this story. It's like, well, you may have to go to the funeral parlor and Christ will be with you. And you may have to go into the difficult work meeting where you're gonna have to say some things and Christ will be with you. That's the great hope. The great hope of scripture is, because here's what we know. Most times people, here's what happens in most of human history in this. People actually go into the flames and they die. That's most of human history. Like if you read, if you read Hebrews 11, the first half of Hebrews 11 is like, by faith they, and it says all these great things. And then the last half of Hebrews 11 says, by faith they were sawn in half. By faith they were murdered and flogged and starving. And it was, it's like all these terrible things that you never want to happen to you. So as it happened by faith, it's like, because we don't know what God's plan is in all this. We, we know God's power. We don't know, always know God's plan. The, the great hope of, of Christianity is that Jesus Christ went into the flames for us, the most important flames. That was hell. That's on the cross. He experienced hell for us, right? Because if you read this story, what's interesting is four men are in the fire, but only three come out. One stays in the fire. That's the story of Christ. That's substitution. Somebody has to stay in the fire. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross is he experienced hell for us. And that's our greatest problem, right? It's like, well, okay, so God makes your life easy but doesn't forgive your sins. It's like, that's not a good deal. The good deal is what Christ has done in bearing the wrath of God for us. He is the greater Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Who, he was the minority who would not bow down, right? Satan said, bow down to me. And he said, I will not bow down. And then he goes to the cross. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at the very end of the story, which we didn't get to, they are exalted and they are honored, and they are rewarded. And that's exactly what happens to Christ. He's exalted, he's honored, he's rewarded, so that at the name of Christ, every knee will bow, and every mouth will confess that he is Lord. So what do we do? It's like, well, we need to make courageous decisions. And you go, well, why not? Or why would I do that? It's because if you read, if you read history, but especially if you read the Bible, what you're gonna see is, um, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is when the spies come back, and they say to the people of Israel, we need to have courage, and we need to go into the promised land. And the people said, the majority said no. And what happens when you don't make a courageous decision? Well, you know this. This is where some of you are, right? You're living in the wilderness. That's actually what happens. That's technically what happens in your life. The reason you're in the wilderness is because you haven't said something. You haven't done something. You haven't trusted Christ. And the, and the power to do that comes from Christ. Jesus Christ is our great comforter who will walk with us through the fire and give us the power to live courageous lives. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray right now that you would give us courage. We thank you for the courage of Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father.
Lord, help us not to bow down to the family idols, the personal idols, the city idols, the nation's idols, Lord. Let us bow down only to you. Give us strength and power to do it. In Christ's name, amen.